Good morning. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bible to the letter to the Hebrews. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 12. We've made it into chapter 12. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, we have been for many months studying through this letter written to the Hebrews. Um, and uh, just a couple things to, to understand about Green Tree as a church. We believe that the Bible uh, is the Word of God. Uh, and therefore, this book uh, contains in it uh, God's Word, and so it carries the authority of God Himself. It, it carries the characteristic of God in His uh, purity in nature, and uh, therefore it is authoritative, uh, it is inerrant in what it is given to us, and it is meant, as it describes itself, it's meant for our good. Uh, it's meant to be for us uh, profitable, for us to grow and to mature. And so uh, the habit of, of Green Tree is that we will take a, a book, a letter of God's Word, and then we spend uh, many Sundays studying through that piece by piece in order that we would be shaped by it. Um, so that's, that's what we have been doing. If you're a guest, we are uh, going through this letter. We're now in chapter 12. Uh, and this morning, we're going to focus on the first two verses of chapter 12. Church, hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning for the edification of our souls. Every fall, athletes gather in the city of Athens uh, for the annual Spartathlon. Uh, this is a race that is run from the city of Athens to the city of Sparta. It is an ultra marathon that covers just about 153 miles. These runners endure these hard miles uh, in any weather condition, whether it be extreme heat or thunderstorms. They run through the night. Uh, with an average finish time of 29 hours. You thought your workday was long. An article that I was reading about how these athletes endured explained not only the, the physical trial of burning muscles, excruciating blisters, bouts of dehydration and exhaustion, but the, the psychological trials, of, of trying to, to focus their mind, 
to, to continually keep going even when their brain is telling them to stop. One competitor, when she was asked, how, how do you cope? How do you run? How do you endure the challenges of, of such a race? And she responded by saying, uh, before the race, she would take time to reflect on previous experiences and the experience of others. And she would seek to learn from them to prepare for when she would hit moments of physical and mental exhaustion so she could be prepared to respond in those times. She also said in, in the race itself, when, when your brain wants to stop because of the extreme pain, she said she would think about how she will reward herself at the end of the event. The author, in the letter to the Hebrews, he wants to encourage his listeners for their enduring this life of faith. And he wants to equip them and prepare them for the, the challenges and the trials that they will face as they seek to endure the race of faith. There will be moments in their life of faith where, where they will be tempted, where they will face the temptations to, to tap out. When the difficulties and the trials and the, the challenges and the, the persecution seem too much to continue on and their, their heart and mind can think, why should I keep going? Where can I tap out? Why can I not just quit? As they survey the landscape of the world that they live in, the cost of living, the cost of living a life in obedience to Jesus it seems too much. They will be tempted to bail. The course set before them seems too hard and too long. And so the author wants to encourage them. He wants to encourage them to endure, to press on. And so after we have studied chapter 11 where he has laid out all these examples of men and women in the faith, he calls them to stay the course. He calls them to consider those who have run before them, to consider their experience, to, to hear from them, keep running, keep enduring, press on, you are going to make it. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever in your life felt like giving up? Have you ever felt because of the circumstances that you face, the trials right before you, the, the, the challenging obedience that you are being called to, it just, it just feels too hard. Like you can't just put one foot in front of the other. Friends, God's word tells us this morning to keep running, to keep running, to press on moving forward. And so here's what we need to know. We need to know and understand how do we do that? 
How do we do that? How do we continue to run? This is the intention of the author's intent in writing to these first century Christians facing trials. He wants them to run, to keep running. And it is the intention of God's word carried by the power of his spirit to tell you this morning, Christ follower, keep running. Keep running. This this is the main point of our text this morning, that we are meant to run, run this race with endurance. Why? We are to run with endurance for the joy of our own souls and for the glory of Jesus. These two verses carry with it a, a weight of understanding and depth of knowledge of, of what God has for us, but they are all surrounded by the main imperative, the main command, the main exhortation of this text is to tell Christians to run. To run. This is why this chapter begins with the word, therefore. And we get to ask my favorite Bible study question. When you're reading your Bibles and you come across this word, you need to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? (laughs) It's meant for us to look back in the context of what has been going on. The author is drawing our attention back to that chapter which we have been studying for so many weeks now of the examples of those who have run and endured. And seeing them, he calls us, now you too run and endure. So how do we run? How do we run this race of faith? We're going to have four subpoints this morning that we're going to look at. And they're right here taken right from the text. How do we run first? We run Christians as those who are surrounded by witnesses. Surrounded by witnesses. This, this is the context of the race in which we are called to run. This is the context of every follower of Jesus seeking to live a life by faith. Christian, this is the defining context of your life. How, 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 often, how do we define our lives? Who are we? Do we define them by location, where we live, by occupation, what we do, by our our ethnic background, something that shapes who we are? The author tells us this morning, Christian, the context of your life, who you are, is one who is surrounded by witnesses. That's who you are. That is the context of your life of faith. You are surrounded by witnesses. What do witnesses do? Witnesses testify, right? They they speak of what they have seen, of what they have witnessed, of what they have experienced. This is the author's point in verse 1. Since we, you, are surrounded by these, these witnesses, these speakers... In chapter 11, the the first example is Abel, and we are told by the author that Abel lived by faith, and though he died, he what? He still speaks. His life witnesses of an enduring life of 
faith, this, this picture that we have here of this, this great cloud of witnesses, it, it's not so much that these, these runners of the faith before us are looking in and watching us as we run. It's, it's more that they are speaking in as we run, telling us, keep going by faith. You're going to make it because that faith you have is the same faith that we had when we ran the race. One commentator, Richard Phillips, describes it this way. He says this, This then is how you should conceive of your life. You, believer, you belong to this noble company of God's people living in this world, but, but glorifying God through faith. This is the context of your life. You are surrounded by those with whom you will spend eternity, those who will be your brothers and sisters long after everyone else is consigned to judgment. You should hear their voices and conform to the pattern of their faith, not the pattern of this world. That's what we're meant to do out of this verse. We're to, to hear all those examples that we have studied in previous weeks, to hear them telling us, keep running by faith, you'll make it. To take them and be encouraged by them. And if, if you want to understand a little bit more about what that looks like, go back and listen to the last seven sermons from this pulpit. That's what we did, right? We looked at them to hear from their lives. It is an encouragement for us to run by faith. The second way we are to run, we are to lay aside every hindrance as we run. The second half of verse one, the author tells us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely in order to run with endurance. The race of endurance is effectively run only when we actively identify and shed off that which will hinder us. Let me say that again, I think it's, it's vitally important. The race of endurance, to run this race, we need to actively identify and shed off that which will hinder us from running. The picture that is given here is of an athlete competing in this long distance race. And the athlete before running the race would, would take off the heavier and longer garments in order to be able to run with greater freedom. You cannot run this race continuing to carry those things with you. You will not Make it. Brothers and sisters, listen. We make a mistake. We make a mistake thinking that we can make it to the end without actively casting aside the things that hinder us. He tells us to lay aside every weight, everything that, that would weigh us down, that would slow us down. If you think you can carry those weights, and at times we do, and we might take up an attitude that says something like, well, the, those, those things in my life, they're, they're not really that heavy. 
Or uh, I'll, I'll drop it off a little bit, a little bit later. Just let me keep it with me for a little while longer. And, and then, then I'll be able to finish the race. We're fooling ourselves. We are fooling ourselves if we think we can carry any weight the full distance. I was recently reading a, a biography of a, a through hiker on the Appalachian Trail. A through hiker is someone who has set out to, to hike the full length of the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine, through the mountains. Someone going along that distance, and what they have along the trail is number of shelters for these hikers to spend time and take a rest at. And as I was reading the, the journaling of this hiker, they observed... Uh, in the first few shelters that they encountered in Georgia, the, the amount of gear that was left behind by other thru-hikers. Those who had, who had filled their pack at the outset of their journey, and by the time they got to the first few shelters, they have decided some things were not necessary. They were too heavy. They were just still in Georgia. And they got to get to Maine. You begin to go, I don't need this fork and knife. I can go with a spoon. <laughs> you make decisions, right? About what you're, when it's on your back and you have to hike it, you decide what, what will allow me to, to endure. These are the kinds of decisions that we are called to make as runners in the race of faith, right? We need to identify, to look in the, the, the packs of our lives and decide what is there that is helping me run and what is there that is hindering me enduring forward. This kind of question, listen, this kind of question, it's going to run into those categories of of, of Christian liberties, right? Uh, things that, that we would not explicitly say are sinful. They're, they're liberties and things that we might take up, that we might have in our lives. They're not explicitly sinful. But when we ask the question, is this helping me run a better race? Is this giving me a, a, a habit of running freely? It helps us to make those decisions. We ask the Spirit to bring to mind, uh, what, what can I lay aside? So I believe this is a question for you today, this week, to look at your life. What, what habits in your life are hindering you? What things are weighing you down? What do you need to decide? Ask the Spirit of God to work in your life to, to lay it down. And listen, I'm telling you this. If you do that, if you ask that question and you identify that which you need to unpack in your life, the flesh will quickly react to convince you not to lay it aside. The flesh the world and the devil will quickly react 
And you will begin to have that battle going on in your mind, convincing you that it's not really necessary to lay it aside, finding every plausible argument to justify you, continually carrying that in your life. Asking that question will enter into a battle. And so be prepared. Like the ultra marathoner, prepare yourself for that moment. How will you respond? Is it worth caring and ask the Spirit to bring it to mind? And these are, these are things, yeah, teenagers, young ones, this, we often, I remember this, asking the question about, about sin. And I, you know what I wanted to know? Where's the line? Why did I want to know where the line was? Because I wanted to get as close as I could to that line. That kind of question, where's the line kind of questioning, that's dangerous questioning. The author is telling us, don't ask that question. Don't ask, is it okay? Ask, will it help me run? Will it help me run with greater freedom? That will discern what is weighing us down and what we need to lay aside. The author doubles down on this and he says, not only those things that that may be allowed but might be weights in your life, but the sin which clings so closely to you. The sin that clings so closely to you. To you. You see, the, the sin that clings so closely to me is not the sin that clings so closely to you. We, we need to recognize this, this interplay between the world, the flesh, and the devil and see that, that sin in our lives is tailor-made for each individual. Sin is tailor-made for each one of us. It clings so closely to me in a different way than it might cling so closely to you. There are sin patterns in my life. And so there will be tailor-made temptations for those patterns in my life. Those things come packaged to look so good to me, to knock me off the path of this race. My, my nature the sinful nature that is, is trying to take me out. It, it packages these things to fight against the things that cling so closely to me. See, the race that we run, we seek to run free from the sin that clings so closely to me. And in order to do this, in order to run this race effectively with victory that is supplied to us, already done by Christ, I believe in order for us to endure, we must actively identify the sin that clings so closely to you. Do you know, as you seek to endure, to mature in holiness, to become more like Christ, do you know the sin that clings so closely to you? Have you identified it? Can you point at it? Can you name it in your life? That pattern of sin that recurs in your life. We cannot 
lay aside that which we cannot identify. You need to know what it is. You need to see it, to identify it, to lay hold of it, and prayerfully get rid of it in order to run with freedom. We want to lay these things aside to run this race of endurance. So we need to know what those things are that weigh us down and cling so closely to us. Let me encourage you. By the end of today, spend time examining your own heart, looking back on the pattern of life throughout the week and name it. See it and confess it to God who is eager to forgive and to equip you to run free from it. So we run. We run surrounded by witnesses. We run laying aside all hindrances. And verse 2 tells us that we are to run looking to Jesus. In order to run this race, we must know what the central focus is as we run. If we are not running in the appropriate direction, we will not make it. We must fix our eyes on the target. The author here knows that the heart of man is a heart seeking pleasure. And as soon as he instructs us to let go of something... We must be ready to take something up. We must be ready to take something up. This is how the affections of the heart work. If you're going to battle the affections of your heart to let go of the things that weigh you down, then your heart needs to take up a greater affection of replacing superior desire. And so the author knows the heart of every one of us and he says that superior desire is Jesus. So look to him and know where you are headed on this track that you are running. Turn your eyes away from what weighs you down, the pleasures of this world. Seek something greater and turn your eyes to Jesus. And what we know about ourselves is we are far too easily distracted. We are far too easily distracted. The author knows this. God knows this. And so he says, listen, look to Jesus. This This phrase here, look to Jesus, it was not a phrase written for a one-time instance. It carries with it an, an active reality that it's an ongoing looking again and again and again and again where you are headed. Look to him again and again. Know where you are going. In high school and college, I, uh, I was a part of competitive rowing. Uh, I was on the crew team in high school, and, and I also had the privilege to do that in college. And I was the coxswain, which meant I was the little guy that got to yell at all the big guys doing all the work. <laughs> uh, but apart from just yelling at those big guys, uh, the, the primary uh, role of the coxswain is to, to steer the boat. And in order to do this, 
uh, you need to effectively steer that thing straight, right? Those guys are working really hard in this race to beat the other guys. Uh, and we all know that the, the shortest distance between two places is what? Straight line. And you can get those guys pretty angry if they look behind you and see that snake trail going because they know they didn't, they raced a longer race. <laughs> and so in order to, to effectively steer this 60-foot boat in a straight line, I needed to pick a target out in the distance. To try and, and look to the boats to the right or the left is, is a futile way to steer straight. But a, a target in the distance, a fixed point out there that I could keep putting my eyes on would, would keep us in a straight line. And, and I needed to continually find that target so to make minor adjustments. Major adjustments would cost speed and time and effort. And the only way to be able to do that with minor adjustments was to keep looking to the target. That's how we are to run this race of faith. To run with endurance, we need to keep fixing our eyes on the target, on Jesus. And our author tells us that we are to look at him because he is, he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The author has talked about this before. In chapter 2 and verse 10, he was talking about Jesus this way. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. So he just gives you some context about who he's talking about, right? The creator and sustainer of all things. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We want to run a race of faith, then we keep looking to the author, to the founder of our faith. We look to Jesus as the one who has started it for us. We, Christian, we start the life of faith by doing what? By looking to Jesus. He, by his, his humble incarnation, becoming a man, by his active obedience, his, his perfect life of discipline, by his sacrificial death, taking the place of sinners and dying on the cross, and by his victorious resurrection has made faith available to all those who would turn and trust in him. He has founded it for us, made it available. Every sinner if that's you this morning, every sinner who has come to follow Jesus has been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the same way that he called Lazarus out of the tomb from death to life. Christian, you have been called out of death darkness and brought to light and life in Jesus, giving you faith which he has founded. And he has set you at the starting line and told you, run. That's you. 
And so, how should we continue to run? By looking to the founder of our faith. By seeing him setting us on this race and looking at his example for how he ran. Because not only did he found our faith in this race, but he has perfected it. He is the one who has completed the race before us perfectly. And he is the one standing at the finish line, ready to reward all those who would run to him. The king of the universe wants to reward you when you finish the race. Does that not quicken your pace? Let your soul, let your soul take that in and consider how you will run, looking to this perfecter of faith, ready to, to reward those who would come. This Jesus founded faith in his life, death, and resurrection, and having completed perfectly, He's ascended the heavenly courts on high and is seated at the right hand of God. His victory is the victory of all who trust in him. If you are a saved sinner this morning, your savior is the king enthroned in glory and is now interceding for you as you run. So what do we do? How do we run? You look to him. You look to him. Listen to how the great reformer John Owen speaks of this. He says, a constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now, the more spiritual and the more heavenly will be the state of our souls. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and of his glory, those things will be expelled. This is how our spiritual life is revived. Friends, this is how we run. Those things that want to weigh us down and take us out, we look to the superior desire. We look to Jesus Christ. And our pace quickens. And in order to do this, this call to look to Jesus, it it needs to be a call that we take up daily. We need to take this up daily. The idea of looking to Jesus is not just some sort of, you know, Christian cliche 
that we, you know, stick on a magnet on our fridge. Like, look to Jesus. It's serious business. Looking to Jesus is meant to do work in your life this week. It's meant to do work in our lives. It is a constant practice that shapes our whole life, a daily work that we take up to look to him. That means that we will work to know him more fully, to understand him with with greater intimacy, to get closer to the Savior King who is the lover of our souls. Do you have plans this week? Do those plans include a deeper, more sweet and familiar knowing of the one who died to set you on this race? Oh, they should be. And and don't leave it up to something you want to do. Make it something you plan to do. Plan your week to actively look to Jesus to study his life, his example, his love, his dying for you. It will sweeten your souls and lighten your feet for this race of faith. The fourth and final way that we are to run with endurance is to do it for joy. The marathon of the Christian life is finding a joy in Christ that is sustained through sacrifices of love, the difficult obedience that we must go through. Yes, we do that, but it is sustained as we do that by making much of Jesus in such a way that when others see it, they want to run with you. When they observe the way that you endure obedience in Your life, by faith, it makes Jesus look sweet. And others want to run with you. Let's let's notice this pattern of joyful endurance that the author of this letter is demonstrating. He's saying that that Jesus, we look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, this is in verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. There was a joy out there before Jesus that he looked upon and that joy worked its way back to motivate him to endure the suffering and shame of the cross. He took on suffering and shame for the joy that was set before him. So we have to ask a question. What is the intent of including this for us as we read our Bibles? What makes the most sense is that the intention is that Jesus is seeing the suffering of the cross before him and considering the joy that is on the other side of that suffering and saying, it's worth it. It's worth it. I can endure this suffering because of the amazing joy that is realized even through this suffering. This is not a new argument for our author. 
Let me draw your attention to two examples that he has recently given his readers and us. Back in chapter 10, verses 32 to 36. You can flip back a page or just listen. He's speaking of the readers and commending them on how they have done this very thing. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. So they have suffering. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's amazing. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What's he saying in this? He's saying, you went through the sufferings and the difficulties of this race because you knew that you had a better and abiding possession out there. It motivated you to run with endurance. In chapter 11, one of the examples of faith from the Old Testament, turn your attention to verse 24. He's talking about Moses, and he said Moses did this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, suffering, then enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What did he do? He laid aside, didn't he? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as, what did he do? Seeing him who is invisible. He's looking forward to the reward. See, this is the argument that the author is making. That future reward works its way back to current circumstances in this life and it motivates us to run with endurance. Future reward works its way back. We know this. We experience this when we put a vacation on our calendar and that just being on the calendar, it works its way back in anticipation for when we get to experience that vacation. And it even affects today, going forward. The future reward, it works its way back so that we can endure trials and circumstances today. But here's the question that arises out of this. Does that mean that the endurance of faith through suffering is presently joyless? Because it's just like, oh man, all the joy is just out there on the other side of the finish line. And everything on this side is hard endurance with no joy. Is that what that means? Is there only joy in the future and sorrow in the present? No, that's not what he's saying. And that's the key to the, to the radical description that we read in chapter 10. What did those first century believers do? They, they joyfully accepted the plundering of our property. That, what? That is radical. 
their possessions taken from them? How could they joyfully accept those, those sufferings? Because future realities work themselves back into present joys. They are, they are foretastes of what we will experience in greater reality. The future joy of exaltation is of such a nature that it works its way back into sweet foretastes through obedience. The Christian life is not a life just waiting for joy. It is a life anticipating great joy while experiencing amazing joy. The foretastes of the joy of heaven are of such a nature that they far exceed any of the tastes of this world. That is the joy that awaits us. Even just the foretastes of it are far better than the fleeting pleasures this world has to offer us. That is, listen, that is powerfully practical in your life this week. If you seek to employ that in your life, I'm telling you, that will be powerfully practical. Your best life now is a life of foretastes that brings sweetness and purpose to your life. There is something incredibly powerful about a purpose-driven life. The purpose-driven life of the Christian is to taste more and more of the joys of Jesus that one day we will experience in full. Your life is about seeking joy in Jesus. Because when you go elsewhere, you're lied to and fooled. But joy in Jesus is this sweetness and engaging purpose in the life. Listen, young ones, you, wanna, you want your life to be about something? You want your life to matter? Make it about joy in Jesus. You will have a fulfilled and meaningful life. And through that, it will, it will grow in you a longing for home. To finish the race. To finish this race. We have great reason to run this race that's marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, experiencing the foretastes of heavenly joys now. We run this race for the great joy of our souls and for making much of Jesus as we look to him and endure as we run. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your word and its great encouragement to our souls. I pray and ask that, that you, by your spirit, would take your word, land it on our hearts. May it do work in our lives this week. May it function that we could run our lives in such a way that makes much of Jesus and is satisfying to our souls. Father, we will face trials and temptations this very week, and we ask that your spirit would call to mind your word to transform our lives for the glory of your name. Amen.